What's up? You guys doing all right tonight? Nice. Hey, how many of y'all missed your be real? It just went off a couple seconds ago. My feelings won't be hurt if you guys want me to be included in your be real tonight. So let's go. Let's go. Let's get it over with. All your friends can know that you are at church tonight. So nice. Y'all are taking a little too long though. I'm feeling a little awkward up here now. There we go. All right. It's that pause that always gets you on that. Be real. You end up looking like this. <laughs> you don't even know why. Well, I'm excited tonight because we're on week two of our series called Origins. As we look at this idea of death to life. And over the next several weeks, um, starting last week, you guys were looking at just hearing from different communicators, different people about the story of God in their lives. And here's a tension that I want to make sure that I recognize. Sometimes we have a tendency in life to, when we see a movie or we read a book, to read ourselves into that movie or that story. But a lot of times when we come to church or when we open up the Bible, we have a tendency to actually read ourselves out of the story. And the tension for all of us as we hear these testimonies over the next seven weeks is for us to read ourselves out of the stories that we're hearing on the stage. For us to go, well, that's not my life. That was their life. Or I didn't have that happen to me. So um, what they said was really good for them, but ultimately it isn't for me. And that's the hard thing when we hear testimonies. I even find myself struggling with that when I open up the Bible and I read the Bible is my tendency is not to read myself into the pages of scripture. My tendency is not to see myself in the pages of scripture. My tendency is to read myself out of it. My tendency is to go, well, that was for somebody that wasn't like me. That was for somebody who hasn't made the mistakes that I've made or done the things that I've done. That was for people who were way more holy than any of us. And that can be the tendency over the next seven weeks for us to, as we embrace these stories, as we hear these things that people are communicating about what God has done in their life, the tendency can be for us to just completely detach ourselves and miss the fact that in every one of the stories that you're hearing, in every one of the messages that the people are speaking from this stage, there's actually a message for you. Because God, um, when he moves in someone's life, he's communicating not just the story of what he's doing in their lives, he's also communicating principles about his character and his nature and the way that he works in our world and through people. Now, I love this idea of origin because it's ultimately talking about this idea of death to life. Now, that can be a strong word when we hear the word death. Um, sometimes it brings about like a really dark place for some of us. And when you think about death, I kind of want to give some categories for us to wrap our minds around when we talk about it. Because when we think about death, sometimes we think about physical death, which very may, very may be the case. But we also have to look at this idea of, of death as disappointment or darkness. In fact, sometimes when we experience disappointment, one of the things that we say is like, I just wish that I was. We can say, we say that. I've said that before, um, or, and we don't always mean it. Sometimes we mean it really strongly, and sometimes we don't. But, but it's, a, it's a figure of speech that we use often. Um, so anytime we face disappointment or darkness or a setback, sometimes we look at that and we go, man, there's, there's no hope. There's no way for me to move forward. And if you think about some of the stories that happen in our world or some of the movies that take place, a lot of times great movies actually have this arc of a story where there's extreme disappointment and they seem like there's no hope and then there actually is hope. And people go, oh wow, that's what makes the story so good. 
In fact, one of my favorite movies um, came out several years ago. Um, it was called Endgame. Anybody seen Endgame? Almost everybody in the room has seen Endgame. Well, if you know anything about all of the movies, it all ultimately leads to this place. And this is also where the death of Marvel happens, but um, get at me after the service. So, but we all know that it ultimately leads to this place where the Avengers and the world, it's experienced unbelievable death and unbelievable disappointment. And then it comes to this moment where Tony Stark through his death is actually gonna bring back life for all of those who existed. It's an unbelievable story. And we're captivated by it because in so many ways, we like the tension of the arc of disappointment to actual winning. We like the arc of disappointment to victory. In fact, um, a lot of the great things that happen in our world actually follow this arc of death to life. They follow the arc of something being disappointing and actually leading to life. In fact, something that um, happened recently that's kind of captivated the whole world right now, something had to die in order for it to happen. <laughs> something, I mean, Joe, Joe had to be like completely kicked to the side for this to happen. And it's captivated our world. Something had to die in order for something to live. Something had to die in order for something to live. Um, Thank you, Taylor, for coming to our service tonight. I don't know if you guys know this, but apparently the game last night uh, had more viewers than the Super Bowl. <laughs> like, so congrats, Taylor, for uh, basically uh, upstaging the whole NFL. Uh, but something had to die in order for this to happen. Now, I don't know if it really happened or not, because who really knows, but, but you get the point. Is a lot of times things have to die in order for there to be life. And a lot of times, a lot of times when we face moments of disappointment, we don't always ask a great question that I think tonight I really want to challenge us to ask. In fact, over the last uh, two weeks as I've been pre preparing for this, looking at this idea of origins and death to life, I've been thinking about the moments in my life when I've faced disappointment. In fact, this is a picture of me from high school. I... Uh, <laughs> I am married. I heard a, I heard a, I don't know what just happened. I heard a whistle and a ooh. I like, if that's not the full, if that is not just a full representation of human emotion, I don't know what is. Like, that is life for you, right? Feel great about yourself, then feel terrible about yourself. That's just how life works sometimes. But as I was thinking about just um, all of the different moments of disappointment in my life, um, leading up to this moment when I was a senior in high school. But even now, um, reflecting on the last uh, 39 years of my life, I turned 39 yesterday. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Wait, no, two days ago. See, I don't even know what day it is. But as I was thinking about all of these moments of disappointment, I began to think about how many times disappointing moments actually have led to life. Moments that felt like death. Maybe it was a dream that died that actually led to life. And there's something unbelievable about this principle, about the fact that a lot of times the things in our life that feel like death or feel like disappointment or feel like something is coming to an end are actually the beginning of some of the best moments in our life. See, the tension for all of us is why do we see disappointment through the lens of death instead of the lens of life? Why do we see that? Why, when someone breaks up with us, 
do we not think this is the beginning of a brand new life? Now, we laugh, but I want you to think back at some of your failed relationships. And you're like, thank God. They were red flag situations. For those of that you were with us for our dating series. But, but think about it. Why is our first instinct when disappointment happens to see it through the lens of death, not the lens of life? Why is our first instinct when those moments happen to go, this is the end, instead of thinking this is the beginning? The more you understand about like creation and the rhythm of creation, it's so interesting that the rhythm of creation is one of these things that um, the more you know about it and the more you understand it, you actually begin to realize that, it re- that most of our, our creation actually lives and thrives off of this idea of something dying in order for something to live. In fact, when you think about the ecosystem and just the way that the circle of life kind of happens, it's relying on certain things dying in order for certain things to live. In fact, trees, when they die, actually produce far more life than when they're alive. Because of the way that they replenish the rest of the trees in the forest and the way that they replenish um, the earth that they're, that they're ultimately planted and rooted in. In fact, in our bodies, cells have to die in order for new cells to be born. And the good thing is when those cells die, what our body's doing is it's actually getting rid of cells that actually are harmful to us or actually are damaged cells so that way new cells can actually bring forth life. See, the rhythm of creation speaks to this idea that oftentimes some things that we would look at as loss are actually gain. Some things that we would look at as disappointing are actually not disappointing at all. Sometimes the things that we would look at and we would go, hey, I wish that that would have never happened to me are actually bringing forth life, not death. See, the rhythm of our stories kind of speak to this idea. The rhythm of all of our stories, and you're going to kind of see this as a consistent theme over the next several weeks as you hear from different people. I know last week you guys heard from Josh and Britt, and they talked about some redirection of their lives. Um, You're going to hear from several different communicators, but there's this arc of every story that's ever existed, of every person that's ever lived. And it's this idea of the meta-narrative. And it's this grand story of scripture that paints for us this idea and this understanding that if we can wrap our minds around it, it actually dictates a lot of things about our lives. It actually teaches us something about the rhythm of creation and the rhythm of our story that I think brings a lot of clarity to why, one, we experience disappointment, one, why we experience setbacks, but but also with that, this idea that we experience setbacks and disappointments it also is this idea that because of a lot of those setbacks and disappointments, we also have an opportunity to experience life. You see, the meta-narrative of Scripture teaches us this idea that there's this grand arc and this grand story that all of us go back to the origin story of creation, where God created all of us perfect and everything worked exactly the way that it was supposed to work. In fact, the, the, the word that it uses there in Genesis when it talks about God created and he said that it was... And he said that it was good actually means perfect. It means lacking nothing. So God creates the world and it lacks nothing. What I love about that is because the world lacked nothing and the world was completely perfect. No one had ever experienced disappointment before. 
No one had experienced death. No one had experienced being let down. No one had experienced pain. So we see this picture of God creating everything perfect, God creating everything um, and saying it was good, which really means lacking nothing. There was nothing to be desired um, without this. There was nothing to be desired because um, everything was exactly the way that it was supposed to be. But then in Genesis 3, something happens. We see sin enter the world and it fractured the way that everything is supposed to work. Fractured the way that people relate to one another. It fractured the way that the, 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 the world ultimately works um, and the rhythm of the world, the way that the, the rhythm of the earth, the rhythm of the world, the rhythm of all of those things exist. And pain enters the scene. Pain and disappointment and tragedy and all of those things that cause us heartache and all of those things that are very real and all of those things that cause us disappointment. And then we see this idea that as the fall happened and the fall entered the world, we see that redemption takes place. And it's this ultimate idea that ultimately when God sent his son into the world, he sent it into the world, he sent his son into the world so that way we could be redeemed back to a right relationship with him. But when we come into a relationship with God, there's also something else that God is doing in the midst of that, which is this idea of restoration, which is God restoring all things back to the way that they were meant to be before the fall. And so anytime you see anything in scripture that says, you're living this way, instead live this way, what God is really doing there is all of the commands of scripture are designed to um, enhance your joy, not restrict your joy are designed to restore your joy, not restrict your joy. And so what God's doing anytime he says, you've been living this way, but instead live this way, he's actually communicating to you a principle of when you choose to live this way, I'm having you enter into the restoration of all things where your life is being restored back to the way that it should have been before the fall ever uh, occurred. So it's taking you back to the rhythm of creation. So we see these arcs all the way through the story of the Bible. And every one of us, as we, as, we, as we hear these testimonies and as we experience these testimonies over the next several weeks, you're going to hear kind of some consistency in there. And what I want you to recognize is because a grand story of life is a meta-narrative, all of us fold into that grand story. Now, the details are going to be a little bit different. It's kind of like a Hallmark Christmas movie. Like anybody seen a Hallmark Christmas movie in here? Uh, you, you guys can be honest. I know the truth. So they have so many of them, you can't live on earth and not see them. So unfortunately, it's like a Hallmark Christmas movie. All of them are the same. Characters are a little different. Details a little different. Maybe it's a small town in Florida versus a small snow town. But they're all ultimately the same. And the truth for all of us is all of our stories are way more similar than we realize. Because we all have at the backdrop of our stories a meta-narrative. This idea that all of us were created um, to be connected with God. All of us were created for a right relationship with God. All of us were created to enjoy God and experience God. And all of us were created not to experience pain. All of us were created not to experience disappointment. All of us were created for the goodness that God has to offer for us. But because of the fall, we all ultimately have been subject to the result of the fall but the good news for all of us is God offers us redemption and God offers us an opportunity to enter into the way of restoration by patterning our lives after the way that Jesus has modeled for us to live. In fact, I remember when I was uh, 17, and I'm going to put my high school picture back up there. 
Yeah, I don't know why y'all keep laughing, man. Meet me in the parking lot after. Are y'all filming this? Oh, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. But I remember when I was 17, and here was my life up until the moment when I was 17. I was the least likely person to ever find faith in Christ. In fact, when people will tell you, um, man, look, if you want to see your future, if you want to see your future, um, look at the five friends that you have around you. Oh, man, if you want to know what my future should be based on the people that were the closest to me when I was in middle school, almost all of my friends that I was closest with in middle school are currently in jail or have multiple children with multiple women. In fact, I've got one friend that's actually serving a triple life sentence for murdering three people with an AK-47. And I don't say that for the sake of drama. I say that for the sake of looking back at those moments of my life. I can't believe that I would ever come to faith in Christ. So here I am as a 17-year-old in high school, and I hear the gospel for the very first time. And what you don't know is the reason why I'm resistant to the gospel, the reason why I'm resistant to the good news of Jesus Christ, the reason why I'm resistant to those things is because ultimately I spent most of my life coming from a broken family. In fact, both of my parents, they were drug addicts growing up. Um, By the time I was seven, I had been to um, seven different elementary schools, um, which is a lot of elementary schools. Um, Hooked on phonics worked for me. Um, Does anybody know what Hooked on Phonics is? So did I just age myself um, from stage? But I had been to seven different elementary schools. I had a lot of hate in my heart. I had a lot of disappointment in my heart. I was frustrated and angry. And when I got to high school, I began to, um, I I loved basketball and I played Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And there was a guy there by the name of Brad Dobbins Speck who would come in, he had these huge glasses. I mean, these things looked like Coke bottles were just attached to this dude's head. And he was, he was so weird, but man, this guy loved Jesus. And he would walk into our basketball locker room and he would go, today, I have a great story to tell you about what God's done for your life. And I need to be honest, I didn't want to hear anything about it. I was like, God does not have a plan for my life. In fact, I want to take you back to what I've been through because of my parents. I want to take you back to the pain that I've had. I want to take you back to all of those things. And ultimately, um, what happened was I didn't want to hear anything about it. And so I rejected it. I heard the gospel like seven times and didn't want anything to do do with it. And then later on in the message, I'm going to tell you about an amazing way that God kind of orchestrated all of that. But one day, January 2nd, 2002, I ultimately placed my faith in Jesus and it changed everything. And here's what began to change when I placed my faith in Jesus. When I had this moment when I believed that the gospel was my story, when I believed that it was a personal story, not just a good story or a story for everyone else, what ended up happening in my life as that happened, I began to look back at all of the disappointing moments in my life, all of the moments that I thought actually were bringing death, and I began to realize that those disappointing moments, those moments that were filled with death, were actually setbacks that were set ups for God's best. They were setbacks that were set ups, set ups for God's best. And that can be really hard to believe in the moment. If I would take you back to um, when I was seven and I found out that my mom was going into drug rehab, I didn't feel like that was a set up for something better. I felt like that was a setback for something better. At six, when my parents got divorced, I didn't think that was a set up. I thought that was a setback. When I moved from school to school to school, I didn't think that was a 
set up. I thought that was a setback. But as I reflect on my life, I have had far more moments where God was setting me up and not setting me back. I've had far more moments when in the moment, because of my despair, I thought this is death or this is disappointment, but it was actually a setback that was a set up for God's best. See, setbacks are oftentimes actually disguised as setbacks because of the way we view things and the lens that we use to see them, but they're actually set ups for God's best. You know, Romans 8 tells us that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. But we also see all throughout scripture this idea that God is ultimately positioning our lives to experience his goodness and his gospel. We see that all the way from Genesis 3, all the way on, that God desires nothing more than for all of us to experience his goodness um, and ultimately what he has for us in that meta narrative arc where he desires for us to experience redemption and restoration. And sometimes, in order for that to happen, there are some things that are lesser things that have to die in order for greater things to give birth. And God does that consistently throughout all of our stories that you may be experiencing disappointment right now. And the one thing I can tell you is, I don't know how your situation ends. I don't know that. But I can tell you this, that God is consistently working for your good and his glory. God is consistently working, even in the midst of disappointment, to set you up for his best, to set you up for what he desires. In fact, In Acts 17, we see this beautiful picture of how God is ultimately orchestrating all of our lives to experience his goodness and his grace and the plan that he has for us. In Acts 17, it's this picture of Paul um, coming to Athens, and he's talking to an incredibly religious group of people. In fact, they had a pluralistic view of God where they were looking at all of these different gods. So they had a God for rain, they had a God for weather, they had a God for sex, they had a God for victory, they had a God for all of these other things. They wanted to make sure they had all of their bases covered. It's not much different than the world that we live in, where we've got all of these idols that we're ultimately looking to bring life to us. And the truth is, Paul stumbles upon these people, and he's having this conversation with them, And he understands that they've ultimately put their trust and their hope in all of these gods that actually promise life and bring death. All of these things that they put their trust in and their hope in and that they're looking to get their value from. And he notices that they're they're looking at all of these things, hoping that they would bring life when they actually bring death. And do you realize this? The most unloving thing God can do for people is to let them put their trust and build their lives on something that promises life and actually brings death. It's the most unloving thing God can allow any of us to do is to allow us to build our lives on something that promises to bring life, but actually brings death. That's why God loves us far too much to let us build our lives or our identity on anything but him because it would be the most unloving thing that he could do for us to say, hey, keep pursuing that thing, keep pursuing that relationship, keep pursuing that job, keep pursuing that pathway, and to give us over to those things that promise to bring life, but actually bring death. So Paul stumbles upon them, and here's what he says in Acts 17. Um, He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, 
For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I find, found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, which just simply means this. They wanted to make sure they had all of their bases covered. So they've got all of these different altars to all of these gods, and they're going, well, what if we forgot one? Just put an unknown God. Like, I don't want to miss out on anything. But then he says, "What well, therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then in the next verse, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So think about this for a second. None of us have ever lived, none of us live in a time that we're not supposed to. None of us uh, in terms of um, time period or in the places that you live. That has never happened by accident. That has happened because God has orchestrated those things. Um, you live in the most ideal time. I, 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 did, um, I studied economics in college, and so I'm always thinking about things in terms of like equilibrium points. And in your life, in my life, what this verse is saying, to take you back to Econ 1, what this verse is saying, you guys can go to school with me tonight. This is so fun. I get to talk about God and economics at the same time. So I may never leave this stage tonight. Um, that ultimately, there's this equilibrium point of your life and the time period that you live um, eclipsing this idea of the goodness of the gospel and the plan that he has for your life. And what Acts 17 is saying is, Acts 17 is saying that you live, you, your DNA makeup, your passions, your pursuits, all of those things that he has actually knit you together in your mother's womb with, all of those things exist at the most ideal time for you to come into a relationship with God. I want you to think about that for a second. That when God was creating you and saying, most of you were probably born in like uh, the early 2000s, maybe the late 1990s. When God was creating you, he was thinking about this idea of so-and-so is going to dwell on the face of this planet at this time. And he has shaped you in such a way that his desire is, is that you would live in such a period of time in the boundaries of your dwelling place. You have not lived in any of the places that you live by accident. And he's done all of that, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In other words, everything about your life, listen, everything about your life and everything about my life has been orchestrated and designed for me to have this moment where I understand God's goodness in my life, where I understand the grace of the gospel. Now, does that always happen? It doesn't because some people choose not to see it. Sometimes we choose to ignore it. Sometimes we choose to consistently put on um, a, a, a lens that sees things through disappointment, sees things through how life has set us back instead of how God is setting us up. But everything in your life has been orchestrated and designed for you to experience the goodness of God. The places, the people, the purposes, all of that has been designed for you to experience the goodness of God. And then at the very end of that, I love what Paul did there, and I've got to begin wrapping up, but I love what Paul did because he quotes this pagan um, poet, 
which would be like reading the Bible and finding like Drake in it. It's just awesome. This part of what I love about the Bible is the more you study it, you're like, man, this Bible is so cool. Like it would be like finding like a, a Drake lyric inside of the Bible where he just quotes this, this like weird, like for we are indeed his offspring. In him we live, move, and have our being. He's quoting this, like almost what would be a pagan philosopher of that day, a pagan poet um, to these men trying to help them understand, like even your own poets understand this. But ultimately, God has orchestrated the places, the people, and the purposes of our lives. In fact, I want to I give an opportunity to demonstrate this through my story. Um, so when I think about the places, I, I talked to you earlier about the fact that I have lived, um, I lived in six different cities my whole life, seven different schools my whole life, um, that like elementary schools, seven different elementary schools. Um, if you include upper education, I went to nine different schools, 10 different schools if you include college. But um, one in Louisiana, um, one in Florida. Yeah, I got one fan of Louisiana in here. Congratulations. Um, one in Louisiana and one in Florida. If you think about Louisiana, um, here's what's interesting about it. My mom goes to drug rehab. Um, at the age of seven, she meets my stepdad in drug rehab. Not exactly um, the dating advice you got in our dating series. So in fact, they tell you not to get involved with somebody when you're in drug rehab because you know you're, whole, you're trying to kick the whole addiction thing. But she meets my stepdad, who also is a drug addict in drug rehab. Um, they meet, um, they get out, um, they eventually get um, married, and we move to Florida. Um, We had a couple stops in between there, actually, but I didn't feel like going into that. Um, So we moved to Florida. We moved to Orlando, Florida. We moved to Kissimmee, Florida. And um, what ends up happening is when I go to high school, I actually went to a high school that I didn't want to go to because I went to a middle school in Kissimmee. And then I was forced because my family moved from Kissimmee to Orlando. I had to go to a high school where I knew absolutely nobody. Cypress Creek High School, anybody in the room? Like, uh, why did I get a, ew, like... Man, y'all are so mean. Um, next week, hey, I'm coming back next week to talk about kindness. Um, so we're going we're gonna to train you guys up right. So um, ultimately, I go to Cypress Creek High School. Um, I know absolutely nobody. It's like one of the most disappointing times in my life. Um, I am depressed. I am upset. I am angry um, because I moved away from all of my friends. Now, the unbelievable thing is all of the friends that I had in middle school, I told you what happened to them. But that separation kind of created some distinction between us. So I go to Cypress Creek High School. And while I'm at Cypress Creek High School, um, ultimately, I hear the gospel for the first time. I told you a guy named Brad Dobbinspeck who came into my locker room and shared the gospel with me seven times. Seven different times before I actually ultimately begin to believe it. He would come every day faithfully, sharing the gospel with me, giving me the good news of Jesus. And I would always just go, I don't really want any of this, but that's cool. I'm glad that you were here this week. None of that would have happened if God wouldn't have orchestrated a move from Louisiana that involved my mom going to drug rehab to meet my stepdad, which I don't know, uh, you explained that one to me, seemed like a setback for me, but it was actually a setup um, because I ended up in Orlando, which is much better than Louisiana. But while I was in Orlando, I hear the gospel for the very first time. But you think about how God orchestrated the places that I live, but then you think about the people that happened in my life. Because while I was in Cypress Creek High School, my junior year, as I was hearing the gospel, something happened. I'm hearing the gospel from this guy named Brad Dobbinspeck, who's sharing it with me faithfully over and over again, no matter how many times I dismiss it and I ignore it. And I meet a couple of friends who start telling me about God and how everything I'm doing in my life isn't the right thing. 
which isn't the best evangelism strategy, but it did get my attention because I was, I was competitive. And I was like, wait a second, you're telling me there's stuff in the Bible that I'm not doing that I'm supposed to do? So I did the only thing I could think of. I bought a Bible to be able to argue with them. No lie. Bought a Bible to argue with them. And so I buy the Bible and because I know nothing about God, absolutely nothing, I open it up. Now, I don't really know if this is how you read the Bible, but me, here's how I read it. I open it up to the middle of the Bible. I was like, I don't know, is this like, is this like a chapter book? Is there a beginning or there end? I don't know. So I'll just open it up to the middle because that's where all the good stuff is in all the books. So I'll open it up there and I turn to the book of Job. And that's where I started my journey of reading the Bible. Turn to the book of Job, light reading. Because I wasn't a Christian, I'm walking around telling everybody I've been reading a book of the Bible called the book of Job. And it's an amazing book. And people just let me keep going. So I'm reading this book and something happened as I'm reading this book because there's, there's a couple things that, that are happening in my life um, in this moment. There's a couple of things that are happening. Um, one Um, I'm walking through a season of disappointment, but as I'm reading the book of Job, all of a sudden something happened. The gospel that I heard seven times through Brad Dobbins' spec, all of a sudden becomes to, um, is ultimately brought to life for me in this season of disappointment. Whereas I'm reading the book of Job, God's communicating to me through the book of Job this idea of if this man Job could lose everything and walk through tragedy and he didn't see it as a setback, he saw it as a set up. He saw it as a setup for God's best. All of a sudden, I begin to go, God, is that what you've been doing my whole life? And the gospel that I heard seven times became real to me in that moment because I'm watching this man Job in scripture that I was still calling Job, but he was faithful. Job was great. (laughs) And I'm reading Job and going, if you can say, blessed be the name of the Lord, then I don't know how I can And so right then I take this gospel that I've heard seven times and and I go, okay, I know what to do because I've heard it seven times. I don't need to go back to the locker room to do this. And so I I just give my life over to Jesus in that moment. God orchestrates those things because he determined the places, the boundary lines in which I dwell, the people that he places in my life. In fact, a couple years later, and I'm gonna begin wrapping up really quickly, but a couple years later, um, my dad, who was a drug addict my whole life, Um, meets a man named Mel Jones. Uh, My dad's the one on the right, in case y'all were confused. (laughs) So I know I'm much better looking than him, so it's hard. Um, So that's my dad on the right. But my dad, um, being a crack addict his whole life, um, he meets this guy named Mel Jones over in the right. Um, He meets Mel in a crack house. And Mel is also a crack addict. And they meet because Mel's about to get jumped by five men who are going to steal his motorbike. But something happened in the life of Mel a couple years after him and my dad met. Um, Mel, who was a crack addict, and my dad who met him in a crack house, has this unbelievable encounter with God where he remembers the faithfulness of God in his life from when he was a child. And he decides, I've got to get over this addiction so that way I can bring light and life to people who are like me. So Mel gets clean, starts a drug ministry um, in New Orleans, Louisiana. 
Uh, my dad's supposed to be going to jail up at that point. That was probably about five years after they met. Um, starts a ministry-based addiction recovery program in New Orleans, one of the darkest places in our country. And my dad's supposed to go to prison um, and spend 10 years in prison. And he's got a choice between prison or going to Mel's drug uh, rehabilitation ministry. In fact, Mel was able to work it out. And for a season, I thought my dad was just going to choose prison. He was like, I don't want anything to do with this whole Bible stuff. But him and Mel had a relationship, and Mel was able to get him into the program instead of going to spend 10 years in prison. And while my dad was in that program, he, he ultimately had a moment where he experienced the presence of God and the gospel of God and gave his life to Jesus. Now, 10 years ago, my dad tragically passed away, but what I like to think about is I like to think about the fact that if God could orchestrate the goodness of God in two men's lives, in the middle of a crack house. There's nothing in your life that you look at and go, man, that was a setback that God can't use as a setup. See, God uses the places and the people that seem like setbacks, and he oftentimes launches us into setups for his goodness. In fact, when I think about just the way that God has used places and people and even purpose in my life, that the passions and the desires and the things that I've loved, I've seen God oftentimes use that and say, hey, Chris, you think this is going to be a setback, but it's actually a set up. In fact, um, I loved basketball in high school, and it was what I built my life on. But when I was in high school, at the same time as I ultimately was open to hearing the gospel and I was receiving the gospel and I was reading through the book of Job, I actually was going through just the worst time of having this, this idol of my life, basketball, ripped away from me, and I was heartbroken over it. But I have to believe that what seemed like a setback in something that I had put so much weight in and something I had put so much hope in, that it was God saying, I love you far too much to let you build your life on something that promises life but actually brings death. Then a couple years later, um, when I was supposed to go to college, my heart was dead set on the University of Florida. And I thought I had the grades. I thought I had the SAT score. I thought I had all of the extracurricular activities. I thought I had it all. And um, I sent my application in, and my mom actually forgot to sign the check. That was back when we did checks. You all know what checks are. They were these things that we sent to pay for stuff. So it, there was no online like way to pay for it. So you had to send in a check. And so she sends in this check with my application and she, forgot to, she forgets to sign it. And by the time they send it back to us, the deadline had passed. And I was so frustrated and so heartbroken. But what seemed like a setback was actually a setup because ultimately what God ended up doing in that season, because he determines the dwelling place of all of us. He determines the, the boundary lines in which we live. I ultimately ended up going to the University of Central Florida. And when I went to the, UC, when I went to the University of Central Florida, um, I had no desire to do ministry. In fact, my hopes and my dreams were to become a corporate lawyer. <laughs> I know, ministry, corporate law, they go together somehow. But that was my hopes and that was my dreams. That's what my heart was dead set on. And while I was at UCF, as I was going into my freshman year, somebody asked me, hey, would you be interested in interning at the church? And I was like, I don't know what that means. 
I'm still calling the book of Job, Job. What do you mean intern at the church? And they said, well, just come and work and we'll teach you everything you need to know. And I was like, I mean, do you pay? And they said, yes. And I went, I need a job. Sounds like a good combination. So I started interning. And in that process, God ultimately called me to ministry. See, what seemed like a setback was actually a set up for God's best. Listen, listen. Sometimes what seems like death is actually death making a way for life. Now, how do you, how do you cling to that when you face disappointment? Because that's hard. I just want to be honest. That's still a daily battle for me. When I experience disappointment, when I experience being let down, when I experience hurt or pain, that is still a battle because life, if we can be honest, sucks. Sucks because we're all living the result of the fall. But how do I cling to the goodness of God that I know he wants me to experience redemption and restoration? How do I cling to that? How do I cling to that in those seasons? It's by remembering that God has ultimately not wasted one second of my life not trying to orchestrate it for his good, for my good and his glory. Listen, no matter what you're facing, no matter what disappointment you've had in the past or the present, God has not wasted one second of your life not trying to orchestrate your life for your good and his glory. Every disappointment you've ever faced is one that God has walked with you in the present. I love what Acts 17 says. It said that he was, he, he was far closer than you ever realize. He's far closer than you ever realize because he's wanting to usher you and lead you into the goodness that he has for you. So I just want to end with this question. And I call it the lens of life. Instead of going, God, what have you taken away from me next time we experience disappointment? What if we just ask this deeper question, God, what might you be setting up in my life? Every time, if it's a job loss, if it's a relationship that went bad, if it's family that just isn't gelling the way that you hoped it would, instead of asking the question, what is this world taking away from me? Can we just ask the question of what might you be setting up in my life? Because when I look at my 39 years of life, most of the time what I thought was disappointment and I thought was a setback was actually a set up for God's best. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you so much that you orchestrate set ups in our lives. God, when I think about my story, I've got the number one thing that I take away from my story. Um, it's not the details. It's the fact that in every detail, you are right there. And so God, I pray that all of the people here tonight would know that, um, God, that their details don't have to be the same. Their details are oftentimes different, um, but it's the God of our details that matters. And God, I've seen you orchestrate that over and over and over and over again. God, that you are the God of my details. God, you are orchestrating all things together for, the, for my good and your glory. And God, you determine the seasons, the times, the places, the spaces, the people, the purposes, all to orchestrate your goodness in my life. And I thank you for that. It's in your perfect and precious name we pray the name of Jesus. Amen.